Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 to 21. What a contrast. Last week's episode was one of the most painful, difficult, and and deep uh, blocks of Scripture that you can cover in a four-year cycle of, of studying the Scriptures, and today is probably the most triumphant and glorious and happy episodes, the, the, the greatest uh, event, this beautiful resurrection of Jesus Christ, first time where somebody is now brought out of the grave into a glorified, resurrected body. Keep in mind, Jesus raised three people from the dead, yeah. but he didn't resurrect them during his ministry. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He brought them back to mortal life, but they would one day die again. In this case, what makes this one so triumphant is Jesus would be resurrected never to die again, and that's very significant. And we invite you to read these stories and hear them afresh, or even imagine this is your first time. You think about the earliest people who were converts to Christianity. They would have not known the story. They would have heard about the horrific crucif crucifixion. Now imagine, as they are hearing the story shared with them, he came back. Imagine the deep spiritual and emotional impetus it would be for the first hearers and listeners to say, this is the man, the Son of God, that I will choose to follow. And I hope that we can get some of that sense, too, of just how stunning this story is, a story that we all are so familiar with, but let's imagine we're now hearing it for the first time. That, that is a great invitation to all of us to put on those fresh ears, fresh eyes to, to engage with these, these story elements as if we've never heard them before and the, the wonder and the awe of it all. Now, before we dive into the actual verses in, in these chapters, let's pause for a moment and review what, the, what, what is going on on this Sunday morning. Remember that they, they shift their calendar over to the new day at sunset. So in a Jewish context, Jesus was, was – he went into Gethsemane and then went through the trials and was placed on the cross, all of it after sunset on what we would call Thursday evening, but they would have called Friday. So this all happens on Friday and then he dies and is buried quickly in the tomb before the sun sets on that Good Friday, as it's often called in, in broader Christian Christianity. Because now, once the sun sets, you're on Saturday, which to them is the Sabbath day, and according to John's time frame, also happens to be a high Sabbath, it's the Passover. So you can't be interacting with the dead body of anybody during your, your Sabbath day or especially during a Passover uh, feast, and so they were hurrying very quickly to get his body 
prepared enough to be able to place it in the tomb and put the stone in front of the tomb, knowing that they have technically, under their, their tradition of the day, roughly three days, 72 hours, to finalize that burial process. So they knew it would be sometime early Sunday morning when they would be able to come, have the stone removed, and finalize the burial process, putting the, you know, cleaning up the body, putting on the oils, the spices, and then wrapping the body up to then seal the tomb up for a year to allow the, the body to decay, and then they would come back a year later and they would take the bones and put them in an ossuary in the first century and put the ossuary in a niche inside of the tomb, and now the tomb is ready for the next family member who passes away to be able to go through that same process. And of course, Jesus' body would see no uh, decay. He's, he's only going to be in there for all of Saturday, which notice this, once again, is the Jewish Sabbath, and so he's there for that full 24 hours. He's there only for a few, maybe one or two hours at the very most from Friday, and then from sundown to early in the morning on Sunday, a few hours, so you add up that 24 plus a few here, 26 maybe, plus a few here. He's only, he's only in the tomb covering three days, but it's, it's a, a period probably closer to 30 to 40 hours, somewhere in, yeah. in that range. Yeah. So, now we jump into this uh, story from four perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's fascinating that none of them perfectly align with the details, and we've talked about this multiple times as we've studied the Gospels, and this is our last lesson of the Gospels before we now embark next week into the book of the Acts and through the Epistles and down to the book of Revelation to finish out this New Testament year. So this is the last time for us to mention the fact that isn't it beautiful that we have four different unique perspectives, four testimonies that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected. But they're going to, to have some difference of approach and a different view on who and when and how these events transformed. So, we begin in Matthew chapter 28. And to build on that briefly, so even though those differences of details might be interesting, we don't want to lose fact about where the testimonies agree, and it is the most important details, which is he died, was buried, and was resurrected. I might point out uh, some years ago when I was in graduate school, I was a teaching assistant. This is at a secular institution for a New Testament class, and the professor assigned this large class of 150 students this group work to compare and contrast all the differences. Now, it's an interesting little exercise, but the outcome for the students was that well, I can't trust this. There's just so much discrepancy. I remember walking away from that experience. Now, it wasn't my class designed. It was, I happened to be the teaching assistant. Like, this is not the purpose for the Gospels. So, yes, can you do that exercise? But more important, let's look for the testimony that teaches the truth. I, I love that perspective. So, let's jump in and let each of these bear their testimony to us today. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, these four testimonies don't mean very much if we 
don't have our testimony of the Savior and of his resurrection. These are all – Scripture is intended to help you and me dive in and have our own experience, have our own connection with Christ, and let's let's let that process unfold as we start first with Matthew chapter 28. So you notice in verse 1 it gives you the timing. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. So in Matthew's account you've got two Marys coming to the sepulcher. And there's this great earthquake, and it says, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. It's interesting to note that in Matthew and Mark and John, Joseph Smith is making the same adjustment through all the Gospels. Whenever it only mentions one angel, Joseph corrects every single time to say there are two angels. It must be a a big deal from his prophetic view to say, nope, there are two witnesses from the heavenly realm who come to this this tomb experience. And notice this beautiful phrase in verse 5 and 6, and the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Those are three of my favorite words in all of Scripture, anywhere written in any book. He is risen. That triumphal conclusion to his infinite atonement, it it doesn't get any better than that, in my opinion, as far as conquering death and hell, that awful monster that Jacob talks about in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi 9. So they become the first missionaries, the first messengers. Remember a couple of important words. The word angel itself means a messenger, somebody sent forth to share a story or a message. So these angels are now in charging these two women to take on their role as angels, as messengers, sent on a mission to spread the good news, the gospel. So right here, the first messengers of the gospel are these two Marys. Which to me is fascinating because they're living in a world, in a culture, and a society that didn't always value the testimony or the witness of women. And your first witnesses of the birth of Christ were Mary and her cousin Elizabeth getting that testimony from John, and now at the end of his life and the beginning of the resurrection, this rebirth into the the eternities, so to speak, once again, you have women there who who are the witnesses of this empty tomb getting the message from the angels and then being told, as Taylor said, now you go and share this message with his apostles. And what I love about this, if we want to look at this from the Egyptian, the word Mary means love, and you have a doubling of love. The witness is love. Jesus was resurrected to share love. The whole plan of salvation is about God's love. And there's a double witness at his resurrection to emphasize this act was ultimately about love. That's powerful. So at this point, many of you 
probably are thinking, wow, this is, this is weird. I'm, I'm not used to, to hearing this part of the story because let's be honest, most people when they're making movies or when we're telling the story of the resurrection, most people don't go to Matthew's account. Most people go to Luke and John, and, and we'll, we'll show you in a minute with Mark, but this will sound kind of unfamiliar to many of you. Listen to this next part, verse 8. They departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Again, we don't often depict this in films. You probably haven't seen this version of the story very often. And so then Jesus says, be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. And then it says, while they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. So Matthew's is the only account that actually picks up this story of, wait a minute, we had, we had guards placed at that tomb. We, we cemented that stone in place and now it's empty. What's going to happen? And so Matthew picks up this story of how there's this conspiracy going on between the chief priests and these guards and them saying, here's some money. Say, if anybody asks you, say that his disciples came and overpowered you and opened the tomb and stole the body, and, and if, if the leaders of the government get you in charge, we'll defend you. And so Matthew's giving you that story here that from that time forward, Many people share this narrative, and Matthew's giving you the source of that narrative here. One of the words I like back here in verse 9, it says, all hail. The underlying Greek word is uh, to be rejoice and be glad, and it comes from the word Eucharist, which we find in other Christian traditions, which is used at their sacrament. It means this grace, this good grace that is come to you, and that's what Jesus is saying, that grace is now available, it always has been, but it is my grace that you are now experiencing, and the resurrection is about unfolding, expanding, and amplifying God's savings, saving grace. So now Matthew's gospel ends with the final commission to the twelve from Jesus in verse 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen." Didn't even notice the beautiful symbolic bookend here that Matthew uses? Back in chapter 1, he told you that Jesus would come into the, into the world and be adopted by Joseph, and he would be called Emmanuel. God with us. And now this book, written largely to Jewish men, Jewish audience, he ends with the closing bookend of Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In other words, I'm leaving the earth. I'm ascending to heaven. I'm not going to be physically with you, but I'm still Emmanuel, God with us. He isn't leaving us. He's not abandoning us. He might physically, his presence might be leaving, but his promise is, I am with you always. And 
I take that kind of personally. I take that promise um, to be applicable to saints throughout the ages, that if you enter into a covenant relationship with Christ, his promise to you is the same as it was to those apostles as he is ascending to heaven, that we will have his spirit to be with us, we'll be able to have the benefit of his presence, his spiritual oversight and protection with us always in all things. And quite frankly, there have been multiple times in my life where I can feel anxiety and stress rising and feeling, I'm not good, I, I can't do this, I can't, I can't accomplish what needs to be happening, or I can't endure this, and there's this calm reassurance to say, wait a minute, I have the Lord Jesus Christ who has given me covenantal promises and he keeps his promises. I can lay this burden at his feet. I'll keep moving forward doing the best I can, but this promise is sure. And this has been a huge blessing in my life so many times that I've lost count. As I listen to this story again, I try to put myself into the mindset of the original hearers of this story. They would have been familiar with ancient biographies that would focus on a hero, the hero's journey, particularly how the hero exemplified certain key characteristics in the manner of their, their death. But in most of the ancient, well, in all the ancient biographies, the hero never comes back. So imagine the massive plot twist of awe and wonder for a listener to hear that the hero is back and it gets better. Not only has the hero come back, Jesus is back, he has promised to always be with us. Think about that as a listener, first time hearing the story. Wait, the, the hero's back and he's promised to always be with me? It's not simply that I should be inspired by the story, but I'm actually now invited to be in the story. That's actually how this ends. You're welcome into the story. God's presence will always be with you. Now it's your job to share this phenomenal, stunning, life-changing story with everybody that you can reach. And think about what happens every Sabbath day for us when we go to a sacrament meeting. We make these promises that we will be willing to take upon us his name, always remember him and keep his commandments that he has given us. And what is the promise? That they may always have his spirit to be with them. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful opportunity for us to relive this story every week and by extension think about it and always remember him throughout the week, not just on the Sabbath day. Which now brings us to Mark's account, which is, is quite, uh, quite different than Matthew and Luke and John's account for a variety of reasons. You'll notice Mark's gospel was very quick-paced, very, very fast. It, it just moves. It's the shortest one, what you have? Shortest book of, of the four gospels, and the, the fascinating element that happens here in Mark chapter 16 is if you look at our oldest manuscripts, our, our earliest copies of the Bible uh, with the book of, of Mark, um, all of them end in verse 8 of chapter 16. It's like this ultimate cliffhanger, and, and I've, I've sat through many hours of people 
talking about what a literary genius Mark was to, to leave, leave us on such a cliffhanger, and I guess that's possible. That is absolutely a possibility that Mark did that on purpose, left us just hanging on verse 8. But there's, there are other possibilities that in these early uh, writings that are being put down by these gospel writers, they write on their, their pieces of paper and then fold them together and then you bind them. It's also possible that the pages of a book, a codex that is put together like this, the most likely pages to get damaged, destroyed, ripped, lost, somehow become unreadable, are going to be the first and the last because it's the same page when it's bound together in a codex, which I find quite interesting because some of you will probably remember that Mark's gospel begins when Jesus is age 30 at his baptism. It just dumps you in, skipping the first 30 years entirely. It doesn't even give you a few verses explaining them, and now it leaves you with this cliffhanger. It's, it's left me wondering, and, and we don't know, but it's left me wondering if perhaps that first and last page of his gospel, or first couple pages, who knows, got removed, or it, I guess it's possible that he is leaving us on this cliffhanger. Look how it happens. Verse uh, chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. So in Mark's gospel, you have three women now coming to do this work. And, and the anointing here doesn't use the Greek term Christ. It's alepho, which is a, it's a different word for anointing. It's these, the outcome's the same, but it's more about what you would do um, for medicine or the preparation of a body for burial. So it's not that, oh, we're anointing him because he's a king. So there's a clear difference here. This is a burial anointing and not a priestly anointing, not a prophetic anointing, and not a messianic or kingly anointing. And isn't it beautiful on that note that a week before in John's Gospel at a feast with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Mary anointed his feet and Jesus told the group, she hath anointed me for my burial. You don't anoint people until they've passed on, and Jesus isn't going to be anointed by any of these women who come with the spices anointment to do it. He's already been anointed That's great. In, in the feast earlier on. Verse 2 says, and very early in the morning, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. So you're seeing that, again, there are going to be some discrepancies on how, how the timing works out between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and quite frankly, I don't care what the time of the day was as much as I care that there was a body in the tomb of Jesus and now it has resurrected and it's out of the tomb. Notice as they come, they're concerned about how, how are we going to roll away this stone? Verse 4, when they looked and they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great, it's a big stone, entering into the sepulchre they saw a young man sitting on the right side clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. Remember once again, Joseph Smith, if you look at the translation in the back of your Bible before the maps, he clarifies it's two men, two angels. 
So he, they say, be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. You're looking in a grave for the Son of God. He's not here. You're looking in the wrong spot. You're digging in the wrong spot. And I place. love the fact they say, behold the place where they laid him. They're like, if you don't trust what we're saying, let your own eyes give you evidence the body isn't here, which means he has resurrected. Now, again, for these early disciples, this is the first time this has ever happened. Now, we all know what's going on, and so they're kind of shocked, like, wait a second, he talked about this, but we've never actually seen this ever happen in all of human history. So imagine any one of us experiencing this, would we not also feel a little perplexed or frightened or concerned, and you might need some heavenly messenger to say, it's okay. He said this was going to happen, and now let's explain what's going on to you, for you. So then the, the invitation of them is, verse 7, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him as he said unto you. So then, verse 8 ends with, and they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed, neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And that's how all of our earliest copies of Mark's gospel end, and it causes these people to think, wow, Mark was amazing because these women are leaving as if they're looking at you saying, are you going to be afraid or are you going to go and bear testimony that Jesus is the Christ? the resurrected Lord and Savior of all mankind. And again, that could be possible that Mark did that, but it would be very unusual, I think, in, in his setting to just close his testimony of, of the Savior's divinity there. And I'm grateful we have these additional verses that show up in later manuscript traditions that give us additional perspective. I, I totally agree. So some copyists later on in the 5th, 6th century felt like that was a very unsatisfying way to end one of the Gospels, so they went and they cobbled together elements from Luke's ending and John's ending and put them together and modified them slightly and created, I think, a beautiful ending to Mark's Gospel here. And by the way, nine through 20. by the way, who among us has not done that? Have you ever taken the four gospel resurrection accounts, and in a class or in a talk, combine them into a single story. Absolutely. And nobody comes up afterwards and says, well, I really can't, you can't trust, trust your trust testimony that. about the resurrection of Jesus. So it's okay that faithful people are attempting to tell the story to convince people of who Jesus is. And I love that, that whoever put this longer ending in Mark together that they ended with verse 19 and 20. This is the sign-off for Mark's Gospel. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So many powerful concepts packed into those two verses. This idea of Jesus didn't just ascend and then kind of dissipate into the, the nebula of space, he ascended to God, and he's now sitting in yonder heavens on the right-hand side of God. That's, that's beautiful doctrine. 
And also, you don't leave it with these women worried and afraid, and we're not even sure did they ever tell anyone the message. Now, frankly, the answer is we know they we did. We know they did. Because we have other records that they did. And we get that. Verse 20, they went forth and preached everywhere. They really did fulfill the commission that we heard back in Matthew. Go be messengers, be missionaries, share the gospel, the good news that Jesus is resurrected. Again, the invitation is for all of us. Now that we have heard the story, let's not simply hoard it to ourselves, let's share it with the world. Yeah, and so this, this is a beautiful ending that applies not just to those women, but also to the apostles, and by default and by extension, it applies to us to go forth and know that the Lord will be working with us, back to Matthew's Emmanuel, God with us, and confirming the word with signs following, amen. What a great ending. Now, Luke's ending, his part of, of telling this story, I, I love Luke's story. Luke the physician, the Gentile convert to Christianity later, he, he, it's presumed he never met Jesus Christ, he, he never saw him during his ministry, but he's very focused on things of the corporeal physical nature, that's, that's what he kind of specializes in. And so, as you get to Luke 24, none of the gospel writers focus more on the physicality, the corporeal nature of the resurrection quite to the degree that Luke does. Uh, notice his opening here, verse 1, now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. To find out who's there, you have to actually jump over to verse 10 because the list gives you it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. So it's a whole group of, of what might be referred to as the Relief Society, and what a beautiful thing. The errand of angels is given to women. So the men might be perhaps sleeping in that Sunday morning, it's, it's early in the morning according to this account, and over in John's account it's going to be while it was yet dark. Um, and early is quite early. Uh, Israel at that time of year, what time does the sun come up? 5, 5.30, 5 o'clock? 5 a.m., and sometimes even a little bit earlier. So, of course, the sun's gone down a little bit earlier in the evening, but still, uh, even in our day, people don't get up that early. It just, they are motivated to do the good deeds of, that are expected to take care of a body that wasn't fully prepared for burial. And I wonder how many of you who, who are studying these chapters this week uh, know what it's like to get up in the middle of the night to take care of the needs of, of your family or of loved ones who maybe have special needs or maybe are aging or maybe a brand new baby. Um, there's something beautiful here that angels in heaven are silent notes taking of these selfless acts of relief and service and kindness, and it brings to mind Jesus' own statement in, in Matthew 25 when he says, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Um, beautiful uh, acts of, of selfless service being being given by these women. So they come in, 
And they found the stone rolled away in verse 2. They entered in, they found not the body of the Lord Jesus, and it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. So Luke's gospel is the only one in the King James Version to get the two men. Joseph changes Matthew, Mark, and John's account to match this, two men. And it says, verse 6, my favorite words again, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee? It's kind of this, it, it's, it's not a rebuke, but it's a gentle reminder of he, he told you he would come to Jerusalem, die, be buried, and be ri risen from the dead. He, he's, he's told you this multiple times. One way I sometimes try to help people understand this without distracting too much from the core text is sometimes you watch a really interesting movie that's a little bit confusing, and near the end, when everything gets revealed, they will do flashback to things that go on earlier in the movie that you thought you understood, but now, as the movie concludes, you see in a new light and everything makes sense. It's like this big reveal, you're like, aha, and there's a sense of like, wow, that was an amazing story. And that's kind of what's going on here, and because these things were repeated, and found throughout the Gospels, it's clear for the disciples they have had this big reveal moment where finally they understand how the story has fallen into place, whereas before they didn't get it. Isn't that fun? So now you get to verse 8, and they remembered his words. It's almost as if they're experiencing this movie scenario that Taylor just described, these flashbacks of, oh, you're right, he did say this and this, and he, he, he prepped us for this, and we missed it back then, but now it makes a lot more sense. Verse 10, they returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest, because you've got all these people who had been gathered together there in Jerusalem, and you then get the list of the, the women who were telling these things to the apostles, and then in verse 11 it says, and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. So you can picture the, the statements of oh, being woken up, it's early, yeah, maybe it was, you probably went to the wrong tomb, we don't, we don't know if we can trust your words. It, I wonder if I may have been in that same boat. How many times in my own life have people come and told me something that is too hard to believe and my immediate thought is like, show me the evidence or I need some more time on this, and it's a real testament to these women that they were willing to stand by their witness, their testimony, and of course to these other disciples who were given the time to come around and learn for themselves and gain their own testimony. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've told the truth, you've borne a witness of something you absolutely knew to be true and people didn't believe you? This is – you're in good company here. Uh, gratefully, Peter verifies this, verse 12, then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. So only Peter in Luke's gospel goes to the tomb to verify, and John's, we're going to get John joining him, and, and we'll cover that story in a, in a few moments. But you'll notice when they refer to the tomb, it's always stooping down. If you go over to, to Jerusalem and look at the, the rock-hewn tombs, most of them that date to the first century, they're not big, huge, open doorways. 
They're usually down some steps into a hewn-out cave, and you have to stoop down to see into them, and that's what's happening here with Peter in verse 12. And then you get the story of Cleopas and another disciple. We don't know who it is. It could have been Cleopas and his wife. It could have been Cleopas and another disciple. It's just two people, one of them is Cleopas, on the road to Emmaus that it tells you in verse 13, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. So that's just over 36,000 feet if we do a rough comparison, or just under seven miles away from Jerusalem, this village. And they're walking, and as they walked and communed together in verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. <laughs> I love this story. These two disciples going home feeling a little bit confused about the testimonies they've heard and the, the events of the last three days in Jerusalem, the sorrow, the misery, the, the tears, and now the, the elated testimony of these women and Peter coming back saying, yep, they got it right, the tomb's empty, and now they're walking home to Emmaus, and here's this stranger walking beside them, and he's asking them questions, and he's listening to them, and he's opening up the scriptures, and he's expounding things unto them, and <clears throat> he's describing the Old Testament prophecies and saying things to them in verse 26 such as, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you notice what just happened? Jesus is taking all the scriptures and he's expounding them to these, these two disciples and he's showing how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Brothers and sisters, if we put on the lens of the Savior to read and interpret and engage with the scriptures, we're far more likely to make sense of them than if we try to leave him out and say, no, they, they, this passage in the Old Testament, this passage in the New Testament, this prophecy, it's not referring to him. I love this verse that all the scriptures were expounded with things concerning himself. It makes me think, Tyler, that in some ways what the invitation is, is was when we engage in scripture study, we are on our road to Emmaus. And as you were talking, it made me think, yeah, it's as if we're on our road to Emmaus and we have to invite Jesus to help us see how the scriptures testify of him. Exactly. And of course, when we get done, Jesus might say, well, I'm going to go spend some other time in the vineyard. We might find ourselves, even after that experience of seeing Jesus in the scriptures, and he's about to move off into other parts of the vineyard, we say, constraining him, abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. I hope I can do that too in my life. And, and don't you love the next line? And he went in to tarry with them. He didn't say, no. I've got more important things to do, more important people to see. It's, it's this beautiful concept that you see in Scripture of ask and you shall receive. It's almost as if he was waiting for them to ask him to come and abide with them. It's a beautiful thing. We have two hymns in our hymn book, Abide With Me and Abide With Me, Tis Eventide, that come out of that one 
that one little beautiful sequence there of Jesus now coming with them. And notice notice the, the, the point of transition in this story. Verse 30, it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them, and their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. It's that moment of the breaking of the bread and giving it to them that they can probably now, their eyes are now uh, able to behold the marks in his hands and perhaps in his wrist and realize who they've been talking to this entire time. That to me is one of the, the beautiful stories of Scripture to realize that Jesus the Christ will often manifest himself to us in ways that we, we didn't recognize him. We don't, we don't see him for who, who he really is in those moments, but it, it's such a powerful thing when he walks with us through other people and through other situations and then makes himself manifest through the breaking of bread. And for me, uh, I love the fact that he invites us to come every Sabbath day to that sacrament table to worship, and it's in that breaking of the bread that hopefully we can give of our heart and our mind to him, at least during that part of the, the sacrament service, where we can more fully have eyes to see and recognize where he has been walking with us during that week and invite him and ask him to walk with us during the week that we're about to begin. What's beautiful about this is we think about the connection to sacrament is that Jesus reveals himself to us in that moment and many other moments, and here he leaves. And what is the very next thing that happens? Verse 32, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? So we're getting this hint that it's not simply about having God's presence with us physically, which we all aspire to and long for, but the spirit, that precious gift, is freely available, and that is the mark that God is with you. And we should seek that every day, particularly in those moments where we have learned about Jesus. And I can say from my own life, I have had many moments of having my heart burn, and it always is humbling and glorious and confirming to me that God is real and his love is real. And honestly, Tyler, this is one of the few places in scriptures we have this kind of clarity about describing what the Spirit feels like. Think about all the pages we have in scriptures. How many times we have something this brightly clear about how the Spirit works? And we invite all of you to think about times in your life when you have felt that burning and know, and seek to find those moments again and where appropriate share with others. That's it's wonderful. I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the power of the Holy Ghost is the promise from section 8, verse 2, and that's being described beautifully as you said in verse 32. And now, what do they do? They're not, they're not just going to sit there and smile at each other and celebrate. They, they run back to Jerusalem. In the dark. In the dark. This is about a seven mile, just under seven miles 
between, if you use the, the descriptor here um, from verse 13, and they go to the apostles and they tell Simon Peter everything that has happened to them, and then verse 36 says, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto, saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said, saith unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Once again, coming from Luke, the physician, focusing on the corporeal nature of this, this resurrected uh, this resurrection and the body that Christ now has of flesh and bone, and he tells them, come and touch, handle. And you turn the page over and you get an additional thing that would have meant a great deal to Luke. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. The word scientist or science means knowledge, and again, we talked about in your heart, in your heart and in your mind, and they're seeking in addition to the burning, because the two people who had the burning are actually part of this group. Now, they've had a witness in their heart, and yet they are also seeking for that intellectual additional knowing in their mind, and Jesus gives them evidence. The word evidence is based on the word video or vision. He wants them to see and know and to feel. He completes the full picture for them. Now, the irony here is they aren't the ones asking him, saying, here, eat this. We want to see if you're, if you're really a, a, a body of flesh and bones. They've already handled and, and seen him. The irony for me is it's Jesus who asks them in verse 41, have ye here any meat? Now, he already knows the answer to that question, but it's as if he's saying, I want you, now that you've handled my, my hands and my feet, you know I'm not a, a spirit, you know I'm, I'm in a flesh here, I want to take it one step further. And then verse 44 says, he saith, or he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures." There it is again. He's, he's pointing them to the power of scripture as a lens through which they can find their Savior and see him for who he, whom he really is and who they have hopefully the desire and the capacity to become more like. And then it, it finishes with verse 48, and ye are witnesses of these things. You know, it would be a real tragedy if all we ever did was sat back and waited to be told by other people what the scriptures mean and what they, what they say. It's, it's great that we can have experiences like this where, we, where teachers and others can share insights and thoughts and perspectives, but at the end of the day, this is an individual thing and a family thing that needs to be done where we engage ourselves with the words of scriptures looking for the Lord Jesus Christ through our serious 
deep study, and it's there where it's not just his name and his titles are revealed, but his attributes, his characteristics, his perfections that we can then work on in integrating into our own life and how we choose to live our life to strive to become more like him. I love, I love the scriptures not because I love the books for the book's sake, but because of what they reveal to me about God and about Jesus Christ and about who I'm striving to become. Then he moves on in verse 49, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So there's a couple things going on there. When he says the promise of my Father, I read this as his Holy Spirit, the enduring presence of God. And then we get this interesting word, endued, which we've talked about before. You've shared many times this word of endowed. And what does that mean? So the Greek word enduo means to, to be clothed in a sacred garment or to put on. So we're going to run into this word multiple times in the epistles of Paul, and it's a clothing ordinance where we're endowed with power from on high. This is not an earthly man-made thing. This is a God-given blessing and reward, this, this gift, this endowment from heaven this sacred clothing that you put on, and Paul later on is going to tell us, put on Christ. The, the symbolism is it's not about garments and about temple clothing for, for fabric's sake. Those are just placeholders. Those are object lessons for the real thing, pointing to this idea of we take upon us the name of Christ, we put him on, we're wrapped in the robe of his righteousness, and that's where we find the power to move forward, endowed with his power to be able to, to push back that dark chain that the devil is holding, veiling the whole face of the earth from Moses chapter 7. It actually it ties into receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is a form of being clothed with the power of God. Now, sometimes in the church we hear people say the phrase, he took out his endowments, or she took out her endowments. And you never would say, he took out the Holy Spirit, or she took out the Holy Spirit. It's receive, which is different. And here, it's about receiving an endowment. We don't take it out. We receive it. It is a gift, and it's something that comes from God. And as you think about the gift of the Holy Ghost that you receive, it's something that you are meant to wear with you symbolically as a protection and as an invitation to be connected to God on a regular basis. We've talked throughout the Old Testament year, but we'll say it again here in the New Testament year, God wants to be in covenantal relationship. And when we receive an endowment, a clothing, it's a reminder that it's as if he's been embracing us and he truly is one with us. And uh, this particular endowment with power from on high is an allusion to something that's going to happen in Luke's volume 2, the book of Acts. Remember, Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers who's going to write a second book that ends up in our, in our biblical canon, and that's the book of Acts, and he's going to tell you about that endowment in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, so we'll cover that next week.
when they, when they are endowed at the Feast of the Pentecost, which is seven weeks after Passover, or fifty days after Passover. Um, notice he finishes here his, his volume one, his gospel, by saying that Jesus led them out and lifted up his hands and blessed them, and then while he blessed them he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So you get the ascension here, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. I would love to think that that verse 53 can apply to us today with our living prophets and apostles receiving this incredible endowment from heaven, this incredible blessing and gift to build temples faster and in, in more uh, diverse parts of the world than ever before in the history of the world to allow us to fulfill verse 53, to be continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You'll notice it's not just going to the temple to check the box, it's we go to the temple as a sign and of a willingness to praise and glorify or bless God. What a, what a beautiful privilege it is. It, we call it temple work, but I think – and there is a degree of work associated with it and sacrifice associated with it, but my heavens, the blessings and the rewards that we receive compared to the work that we put in can't even compare to what we take out from that experience. I really like the underlying word here in verse 50 about where it says, Jesus blessed them. The underlying Greek word is what we get in our English, eulogy. Now, eulogy comes from two Greek words, good words. So Jesus is blessing them, but he's saying good and kind and uplifting words. And I take a lot of encouragement from this. I'm sure he gave them enormous blessings, but imagine the Savior of the world speaking kind words to you, uplifting words, helping you to see your true identity as a child of God. Can you imagine how good those words must have sounded to them? So think, how can we be like Jesus and spread good words to others and let those good words about others uplift them and be a blessing where they can feel God's presence in their lives? Now we shift over to John's account of the resurrection starting in John chapter 20. His is quite unique on a, on a couple of levels. Verse 1 says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. So in his gospel, Mary's coming – she's the only one mentioned. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's largely believed to be John, the writer of this book. And she said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Notice here it says, We know not where they have laid him. The implication is this is a plural form of the pronoun we, implying that even though John only told you Mary's name, the implication is there were other women with her at the tomb. And so Peter, therefore, went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So now Peter and John get up and they're like, well, we're going to go verify. 
And I, I, I shouldn't laugh, but I, I like verse 4. It's fun. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. Thank you, John, for telling us that you, you beat Peter in a foot race. And he's so humble, he doesn't really put his name in. He just, for the astute reader, they're like, oh, well, John's faster than Peter. <laughs> and then he had the respect to wait until Peter, uh, the senior apostle, to arrive, and once again, notice, he stooping down, he looked in and he saw the linen clothes lying yet when he went yet he went not in. And then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. There's this sense of a not clothes flung off willy-nilly and thrown on the floor. I think it's interesting here that Jesus is a God of order. It's such a small little detail. He's resurrected. That matters more than anything. I mean, would it really have mattered had there been a bit of a mess of clothing or the linen cloth? No. But the fact that things are in order, like you just got resurrected, the greatest event in all of, like, universe's history, and you've taken the time to put things in order. We worship a God of order. So John here, as the writer, tells you his story in verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre, in case you forgot, and he saw and believed. Isn't that amazing that there's this progression of conversion, progression of testimony that leads to deeper conversion. He, he sees for himself, not that he couldn't have believed if Peter had borne testimony or if Mary Magdalene had borne testimony, but there's something powerful about coming to know for oneself or coming to believe for oneself. And then they leave in verse 10 and went unto their own home, and verse 11 tells us that Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. So she's also getting down to look into the sepulchre. And this weeping is interesting. We see it again in verse 13, and it's we've mentioned this in other videos that there's two different types of weeping. There's kind of the, the soft tears that are very quiet, and then there's a the loud, grief-stricken weeping. This is the latter. She is very audibly expressing her grief that her beloved master is gone. And verse 12 says, she seeth two angels in white sitting. Uh, again, back in verse 1, the Joseph Smith translation tells us there that two angels were sitting thereon, on the stone. So Joseph added that detail there in John's Gospel, and here over in verse 12, now that she's come back and Peter and John have left, now she sees two angels again sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain, and they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. She came wanting to do a very kind deed for the body of Jesus. And in the end of this story, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come to perform a very kind act or deed for Mary Magdalene. Uh, verse 14, 
she she thinks it's the gardener uh, behind him. And I like this word gardener in Greek. It means the one who watches over the garden. And I think the earth is God's garden. It started as the Garden of Eden. He'll make it his paradise again. He's the one who watches over. Exactly. So she she looks and she sees Jesus standing there, and Jesus, verse 15, says, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Do you find that interesting and a little bit ironic that she supposed him to be the gardener? He is a gardener, as you've said. He, he is the master sower and harvester and one who knows how to produce fruit. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary. One word, her name. And it's in hearing her name that she recognizes him, and she saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. Often in film depictions, you'll see her coming to kind of embrace him, and Jesus saying, touch me not, don't don't touch me. If you look at the Joe Smith translation footnote at the bottom of the page, he says, hold me not. And if you look at Strong's concordance, if you look at that word for touch me not, the word actually implies much more of a let me go, let stop holding on to me, don't hold me back, let go of me. The idea being, that she came up and she's hugging him, she's holding him, and after a, a period of time he, he says, okay, you need to let go now because why? I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. And if, if I could just uh, speak on a on a very personal level for just a moment, if you were to give me the option, uh, one wish granted to be able to be a witness of one event in the entire history of the scripture canon, and, and you told me I could witness one thing that is kind of mentioned or referenced in the scriptures, this would be the event between verse 17 and 18. It would be to see that most glorious moment when the resurrected, glorified, perfected Lord Jesus Christ does indeed ascend to heaven, to his God and our God, to his Father and our Father, when he can present himself to God and say, Behold, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It, it's all complete. The infinite atonement is complete. And to be able to witness that embrace, uh, that would be the one event that I would pick, but perhaps I do sin in my wish. Maybe that's uh, that's very sacred ground, but it's not unreasonable to imagine your experience with that. 
the, the day will come when you will get to and I will get to ascend into the presence of the Father, and oh, how that can be such a glorious, uh, magnificent event for those who have entered into and stayed in that covenant relationship with Jesus Christ as he now brings us into the presence of the Father to present us on his merits, his mercy, and his grace alone in, in that same kind of uh, a setting. What a, what a beautiful event here. Verse 19 then tells us that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so it's Sunday evening, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And notice earlier on it said the doors were shut. So all of a sudden he's in the room, but he didn't come walking through any doors or windows. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, and then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then he, he blesses them. And later on, verse 24 introduces the story of Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus. Didymus in the Greek is the twin. So Thomas the twin, and they tell him all about this experience, and his response was, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, the reality is, is the other apostles, the other ten apostles kind of said similar things to Mary and the women. They didn't, they didn't believe their words and their testimony either, and so now eight days later in verse 26, again the doors were shut and the Lord appears. This time Thomas is with them and Jesus turns to him and says, Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. And then the Lord teaches this beautiful lesson. Verse 29 is amazing. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And guess what? That includes most of us. That that is such a beautiful promise that, that you don't have to touch the wounds to be able to believe the testimony of special witnesses in scriptures and living prophets who are a special witnesses of the resurrection and of the name of Jesus Christ. What a, what a beautiful uh, conclusion to that story with Thomas. Now, chapter 21 is this beautiful prologue to, to John's Gospel, this, this ending chapter where you've had these experiences and in chapter 21, verse 3, Simon Peter says unto these this handful of disciples who are with him, I go a-fishing, and they say unto him, We also go with thee. And they went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Once again, it's a little embarrassing for the professional fishermen here. The two fishing excursions that are recorded in the Gospels here and in Luke chapter 5, he, he catches nothing on his own, but he catches everything when the Savior gets involved. So early in the morning, uh, verse 4 tells us that Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. 
Then Jesus said unto the, saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, No. <laughs> and he saith unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of fishes. Mm-hmm. At which point John, in that early dawn light, grabs Peter and says, Peter, it is the Lord. We've seen this before, at which point Peter puts on his fisherman's cloak and he jumps into the sea and swims to shore. Love Peter. And he he comes into shore, and I love this, verse 9, as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. He has a nice warm breakfast ready for them after a discouraging night of catching nothing, and now they've got the the nets filled, so they bring up the fish to land. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty-three. Huh, 153, eh? Tells you something. They counted them. They're pretty proud of this catch. We've, We've numbered these fish. And now you get this incredible teaching moment where Jesus takes Peter aside and verse 15 says, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? The implication being these these 153 fish. And he saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, feed my lambs and we think, okay, good, that's a great lesson. But Jesus says, verse 16, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my sheep. And then the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him, the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a great talk in General Conference many years ago about this passage and this idea that Peter didn't come to this earth to become Galilee's most prolific fisherman. He came to this earth to be the chief apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and to go and feed sheep not catch fish and to feed the lambs. And then Jesus prophesies to Peter after the manner of death that he's going to experience in verse 18. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt, they, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee and carry, their, carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And then the, the descriptor there in verse 19 is about his death. And then this invitation, And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. The whole curriculum of the church that was introduced by our prophets and seers and revelators was given a beautiful name, Come, follow me. And here the Lord is concluding this experience with Peter with that simple invitation, Follow me. Don't go fishing. That's your former life. I want you to to be a new creature. Follow me. And Peter then turned and saw John following them, and he starts asking this question about 
what are you, what are you doing with John? And verse 22 says, Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. It's his invitation to say, stop comparing, stop looking at what I'm doing with other people and what I've promised other people. Focus on me, Peter. Don't look at John. Look at me. If you're so focused on following Jesus, you don't have time to compare where other people are at on their path of following Jesus. And frankly, it's kind of irrelevant. Other than inviting them to follow him. And uh, isn't, it, isn't it amazing, this blessing, this privilege to have prophets, surgeon revelators on the earth with us today, and when we say follow the prophets, we know who they're following, and we know how closely they're following the Savior, so consequently we know who we're following. So if we keep our, our focus fixed on the Savior, and on his living prophets, studying the scriptures through the lenses of the Lord Jesus Christ, the path is, is sure. It's marked. He is the way. We're going to follow and become more like him, and it's such a beautiful conclusion to this resurrection story. Notice the wording in these last two verses, 24 and 25. It seems to be written by other people after the fact as a testimony tacked on to the end of John's testimony of this, this invitation to follow thou me given to Peter. Look at verse 24. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So somebody speaking about John now from a, a group third-person perspective, and then this beautiful verse 25 and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Amen. So as we conclude this episode on the resurrection, this greatest of great events in the history of the universe as far as we're concerned, what a privilege it is to add our testimony to the many, many testimonies given before these four in the Gospels, as well as countless people through the ages testifying that Jesus is the Christ, that he did indeed die on Calvary's cross, he was laid in the tomb, and he rose triumphant and came forth from the grave, and he sits today enthroned in yonder heavens as the resurrected, glorified Son of God, and perhaps more importantly as our Savior and Redeemer, or more specifically, your Savior and Redeemer. And we invite you to add your testimony, your gospel, to these that we've been studying. And we leave that with you as we celebrate this, this Easter lesson in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.
feel 